Mindset is a sociology podcast that poses more questions than answers. Join your hosts, doctors, Nama Carl and Melanie White in a journey to make the familiar unfamiliar. say that a sociology podcast that poses more questions than answers i'm nama carlin and i'm melanie white and i have a question Let's how go. are you today nama oh, thank you for asking i'm really well thank you how are you i am very well as well yeah thank you i just thought it was inspiration i thought i would ask you you know there's always a presumption that you know we're I just thought I would ask. I appreciate it, kindly. What are we doing today? If you'll recall, in our last session, what we ended up discussing was Derrida's critique of Descartes and essentially the idea that Descartes operated with a, or established a distinction between human and non-human animals based on the human capacity to respond, to establish meaning and so forth. And Derrida found a way to challenge this and observe the sense in which this boundary between human and non-human animal actually tracks through much of modern philosophy. And so today we are considering another contemporary thinker who seeks to challenge that Cartesian legacy of the boundary between human and non-human animal. And he does this through the idea or the concept of morality. That's right. So it's interesting because so far we have been discussing different sociologists, uh, philosophers, psychoanalysts. I'm thinking about Freud here. Today we have someone new, someone who is not like any of the other thinkers that we have discussed. And the reason is he's a primatologist. And his name is Franz de Waal, who is also not dead and <laughs> distinguishing himself. Knock on wood. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, God forbid. Yes. He, he is well and alive. And, you know, about a decade ago, he was nominated by Time magazine as one of the 100 people who shape our world. Wow. So he is a professor of primate behavior at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And the text that we're thinking about today and concentrating on is a lecture that he gave as part of Tanner Lectures on Human Values. And this is an outfit. This is a a silly little joke of of my part because I believe uh, the Tanner family was a a textile manufacturer, or if not, then uh, a manufacturer of some sort. So anyway, it's Uh, neither here nor there, Uh, but Obert Tanner was a professor of moral philosophy and religion, and on his death they bequeathed to uh, the University of Utah an endowment with the sole purpose of providing scholars who reflect on and promote and think about the field of human values. And so the purpose of this endowment was to advance and reflect upon scholarly and scientific learning. And guess what? Our guy, Franz de Waal, 
gave one of these lectures. And if you can believe it, this is like, if you're invited to give a Tanner lecture, you are top dog. Like, absolutely. So this is an incredible honor. And it's, um, you know, a height of, of, of achievement in one's career. What does a primatologist have to say about human values? Interestingly, so I think we go back to, do you remember when we were talking about Durkheim? Of course. <laughs> no, can never forget that day. <laughs> well, Durkheim, if you'll remember, was interested in making social morality distinct from any biological or philosophical underpinning. And one of DeWall's contributions is to say, you know what, to someone like Durkheim, Durkheim, you may think that morality is a distinctly human achievement, but in fact, the conditions of morality are really a function of our evolutionary trajectory. So morality in principle, certainly human beings exhibit a full-blown moral capacity, but the building blocks of morality exist in non-human animals such as primates. The fundamental building block is empathy, and empathy is a form of moral feeling that expresses an awareness of in-group behavior in the sense that it's that feeling of empathy in the way that we relate and we experience one another with a capacity for seeing ourselves in another's shoes at the same time as it's also a form of distinguishing and demarcating outgroup behavior that is uh, who does not belong within our particular group. For our purposes I think this argument kind of hinges on the idea that the human animal and non-human animal are much closer related than traditional sociologists, philosophers would have us think. So if we can identify the, these building blocks of morality in non-human animals, what does that say about the relationship between being human and being animal? And when we think about the question of selfhood or the self, as we've been exploring in this podcast so far, if these attributes of selfhood and sociality are shared. Can we think of selfhood as something that non-human animals share too? I think that those are absolutely the questions that we need to be asking. And I think one of the consequences of someone like Duwal's contribution is to challenge, as Derrida challenges the apex of human exceptionalism, are we really um, so exceptional and are we so special? I think very often the capacity for morality is touted as something that sets us, i.e. humans, apart from non-human animals. And so if we take that moral capacity out of the equation, and in fact we see that there is a continuity between non-human primates and human beings, then it actually has the effect of challenging some of our preconceptions about how fundamentally exceptional human beings are. I think this is a significant problem because the, the idea that morality as a, a specifically human or social uh, capacity, capacity for, um, for experiencing morality as human goes back to, you know, if we think of religion, the, f the foundation really of how we try and organize society, the capacity to know the difference between right and wrong. Um, and it sort of helps us justify a lot of violence towards non-human animals too. 
mm, the idea that we possess morality and so we're somehow you know as you said this 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 exceptionalism if we in a tradition of sociology are built on and informed by Durkheim's writing and work of society as this human product der Waal's positionality of morality as something that is not so much a different in type but a different in degree can provide some challenges but also informed critique so that's the purpose of our episode today mm -hmm. is bring in this argument and see how it helps shape or inform the way that we conceive of ourselves as people social but also not just in relation to each other but in relation to other beings in the world I think this is quite right and I like the distinction that you make between a difference in degree and a difference in kind so for Durkheim there is a fundamental difference in kind between non-human animals and humans and that fundamental difference in kind has to do with the human capacity for sociality and for morality which for him are essentially equivalent but if we zero in on DeWall's contribution not that he mentions Durkheim directly but what he does do is he challenges that distinctiveness of the human capacity for morality by demonstrating through his experiments and observation of primates such as bonobos and capuchin monkeys that to demonstrate that there are these early foundational building blocks of morality exhibited within these social networks of these primates and so consequently this shows that there is a difference in degree that is there's a degree of difference between the morality of the capuchin monkey and the morality of the human being of course the capuchin monkey doesn't necessarily develop the full-blown cultural context and uh, value system that human beings do and and DeWall absolutely acknowledges that but the very basic building blocks as exhibited by the capacity for a feeling of empathy is um, ultimately what establishes the continuum between human and non-human animals so I guess I've got a question for you Nama I'm just the question asker today I just like asking questions how are you and what is empathy I I get confused about what empathy is and is it something that's I mean I often think about the word sympathy and I think that sympathy is something very similar to empathy but it seems to me that DeWall uses it in a way that's quite different I like your question and I was thinking about it today I was thinking about the notion of empathy the capacity to feel empathetic is to be able to step outside from yourself and share or understand the experiences of someone else. Empathy, it's to actually have that experience of pain or suffering or joy that someone else experiences. What does DeWall have to say about empathy? Well, interestingly enough, I came prepared. And <laughs> I uh, came prepared with this little extra extract from DeWall's book The Age of Empathy and this is where he defines empathy. He says empathy is quote the ability to be affected by the state of another individual or creature and now okay so that seems pretty consistent with mm. what your definition is. His definition continues and he says this can be just body movement such as when we mimic the behavior of others 
We put our arms behind our head if others do the same and follow our colleagues at a meeting or in crossing or uncrossing our legs, leaning forward or backward, adjusting our hair, putting elbows on the table and so on. Now, it's interesting to me that he uses empathy to define that. I often think when I read this, I think about those TV shows where it's the top 10 dating hacks. And when you're in a bar, put your arm up like this, mimic the other person, and so catch eye contact. Oh, she or he takes a drink, you take a drink. Oh, the finger goes to the ear or plays with the hair. Ah, you do the same. And that mimicking is a gestural uh, way of expressing empathy. But it's interesting to me because I'm not sure that that is necessarily moral to me. I think that you're onto something. When you were talking about the example of uh, how do you express a shared connection or interest in someone, but even when you, with a case of small children, when you, they learn how to behave or how to move their, their bodies, it's that same copying or mimicking someone else's behavior. I think that you see that in non-human animals too. It's not a purely human attribute. I don't, that's my point, I guess. I like the idea of empathy as being something that is embodied and not just emotional. Because when I was thinking about empathy, to me, it was a capacity to experience um, an effective event or moment or feeling and what the wild does he says well this is all embodied and it says something about how you interact with others and not and and yourself as well he's got this marvelous moment in the tanner lectures where he observes the example of a child making a misstep and even falling into a well and there's something he says that is almost universal to the instinct to want to reach out and catch the falling person and that that is an instinct that is indicative of this kind of embodied empathy that reaching out and that feeling of securing that person is a moral impulse and that moral impulse is is one that is not human alone but it is also extended to non-human animals so you know the capuchin monkeys the bonobos they also exhibit similar behavior in terms of that reaching out for protection that for dewall in his interpretation is something that expresses that moral capacity like i saw photos of on the internet of a cat that went into a burning house to collect her kittens oh Oh my goodness i know so the interesting part here is that for Dewal, morality then, contra to Durkheim, isn't an achievement. It's something that is a product of our innate capacity, our interactions with each other. And it can be found if we're thinking of it in terms of, well, I guess this is the point between the difference between morality and empathy, right? So if empathy is as the, as the seeds of morality can be found and shared by non-human animals, then... What does that actually have to say about human societies? Hmm. Well, and I think uh, it's um, important not to underestimate the strength or the thrust, maybe this is the right word, of DeWall's 
intervention here because he's not only uh, taking a swipe at somebody like Durkheim saying, hey, dude, let's take off your moral medal of achievement. You know, this isn't an achievement per se, but he's also taking a swipe at a whole other group of moral philosophers for whom uh, the assumption is that human nature in particular is fundamentally immoral, fundamentally evil, fundamental, fundamentally bad to the very core. And so this would be the kind of thought associated with someone like Thomas Hobbes, who in the 17th century wrote Leviathan and who famously depicts the experience of individuals in the state of nature as being nasty, brutish, and short. And um, I love that. If it's I my, recall... It's my Tinder bio. <laughs> nasty, brutish, and short. Oh, goodness. Oh. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Yes, well, perhaps you would have done well in Hobbes' state of nature. There was an important moment, though, where uh, in in his account where people come together and say, you know what, man, this, this, this Tinder lifestyle really sucks. We need to make a social compact here. And, uh, and that social compact ends up becoming the ground for society. It seems to me that what Dewal is saying is not inconsistent with what Durkheim is saying in that empathy helps support the social, the whole. So isn't that kind of what Durkheim claims too when he speaks of morality? So is there a difference between the kinds of socialities that we have? DeWall is wanting to challenge the idea of people like Hobbes, and, and certainly Durkheim challenged somebody like Hobbes too, but for a different reason. Uh, Durkheim's critique of Hobbes was that there is never a pre-social moment and uh, we have always been social. And so Durkheim, like DeWall, is wanting to challenge the idea that there is a pre-social individual or a pre-social context that emerges prior to the establishment of society or the establishment of morality. So I think you're absolutely right that 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 is what joins them together. But what distinguishes them is this sense in which DeWall is very clear that he's challenging what he calls the veneer theory of morality and what I call the IKEA. Whoops. <laughs> Not branded. Uh, the IKEA uh, theory of morality. Why? You've had the experience, as, as I have, of having the do-it-yourself furniture experience where you go to, you know, and even as I said Ikea, I realized I saw one of those, are you pronouncing it correctly videos, and I realized I'm not. It's supposed to be Ikea or Ikea, but I call it Ikea. I just mm. want to call it Ikea, yeah. even though I know I'm not pronouncing it correctly. I don't think anyone cares. Okay, well, this is good to know. This is good to know. In any event, the veneer theory or the IKEA theory of morality, which is, okay, let's get some particle board, which is really cheap and, and icky and not worth very much at all, and make that equivalent to this fundamental core of human nature, which is itself not very pretty, ugly, and a bit, and a bit more than a bit quite a lot icky because it is fundamentally bad and evil 
And let's cover it. Violent. Exactly. Let's cover it with a beautiful white oak veneer to make it look pretty. And that veneer is the thin cast of morality that, as you know, if you treat your Ikea furniture like I treat mine, there are bumps and scratches all over it because the core of that, um, that evil core is always wanting to seep out at the slightest bump at the most slimmest wound. Scratch at the surface of the veneer and all the bad stuff starts coming out. Yes, you'd think that we are in a Dr. Pimple Popper video. (laughs) (laughs) Never having been thought before, the equivalence between Dr. Pimple Popper and Franz DeWall veneer theory. There we are. I mean, this is absolutely right. And DeWall is wanting to challenge this idea. In veneer theory, would we say that morality is a choice or is it something that is a product of being social? Well, I think DeWall, and I mean, certainly this idea of a veneer theory, I think, is DeWall's invention. It's a, it's a term that's applied to a series of theoretical contributions that argue that morality is a thin veneer overlaid on top of an immoral core. And so, and just with the assumption that human nature is by its constitution its essence fundamentally bad that is narrow or selfish and that we without the the uh, influence of morality should be expected to act badly and so from this vantage proponents of uh, veneer theory would say yes at some point there needs to be a choice to become moral that it is using Durkheim's words an achievement because it's an overcoming of that Uh, very bestial, originary, bad kind of amoral core. And this is what makes... So it means... (laughs) (laughs) So at roots, our instincts are still violent, are still aggressive. We're antisocial, we're immoral, we're egoistic, violent, aggressive. And morality just simply covers all that up because we're obligated to each other to act in society, to cooperate, and DeWall would say, yes, okay, so these are the assumptions, but look at the evidence. Yeah. Look at the evidence. Let's and look at the evidence. So basically, he his starting point is to say, okay, well, coming from the perspective of a primatologist, what evidence is there to demonstrate that humans have a motivation to break with their biology? If their biology here is considered to be a moral, violent, evil, bad why would someone become motivated to become an upstart, to challenge that, to overcome that? And how do we equally account for the fact that humans alone have broken from their biology? What, what is the motivation for that? And it seems that, in fact, there isn't any evidence for this. Rather, neuroscience shows us that the emotional centers of the brain have activated long before human beings appeared and primatology what DeWall's area of expertise establishes a continuity an evolutionary continuity between non-human and human primates and so he throws veneer theory out with the bathwater veneer theory being the baby of course (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks for clarifying. An interesting part of DeWall's talk is when he brings a quote from Thomas Hobbes's Levi Leviathan, which we also touched on when we looked at Freud, and that is homo homini lupus, which is man is wolf to man. Ooh. Oh, no, that sounded like a ghost. <laughs> a ghost. <laughs> I meant that to be like a wolf howl. That was a, a very good. Oh. Wonderful wolf howl. Thank you for that. The way that Hobbes and Freud have in used this argument to say, you know, we uh, where man is wolf to man is that we are violent and aggressive towards each other. We will fight each other. What Dewal is saying is really that wolves are not these violent, aggressive creatures. They're social, gregarious. They care for each other. And so that misconstrues or misrepresents the biological nature of what being a wolf is and we use it to justify or explain um this idea of the the veneer of or what is under the veneer of morality that violence the violence that veneer the morality covers up well this is right and i think at root is dewall's objection that um, in the same way that wolves have been caricatured to be these aggressive creatures and following from your point that, in fact, if you look at the biological evidence, uh, wolves are incredib have incredibly complex social groups and studying the nature of their behavior shows them to be a social community. DeWall uses this evidence along with evidence from other experiments and studies to make the claim that there was never a point at which we become social. That is, human beings become social. It's, it's not a function of choice. It's not a function of waking up one day and saying, okay, well, you know, today, Melanie, as an individual today, I'm going to step into the social world or I'm going to join a social compact. Nor is it an achievement in the way that Durkheim might conceptualize it. What the evolutionary evidence demonstrates is that monkeys, apes, wolves, have been group living forever. This is what DeWall says. And so this must be the starting point for our conceptualization of the social and what society is. Certainly this is not to say that society is necessarily democratic or equivalent because we look at these communities of canids, i.e. Uh, wolves or uh, primates, i.e monkeys and say okay well you know there are very clear hierarchies in their relation with one another but the fact of there being a feeling of empathy of being able to capture the capacity of being outside oneself in a shared relation with another there's evidence to support the fact that this occurs within non-human animals it also challenges the assumption that something that is biological or quote-unquote natural is always so negative right you perceive the non non-human world to be oh this wilderness of or violent or just uncontrollable it's an interesting way of reframing the biological or the natural is that we have imposed our own idea of what ethics and morality are what it means to be social and we have overlooked how other other beings choose to be in company with each other and behave with each other there's a very lovely example that DeWall gives 
about the relationship between species. By and large, he discusses empathy in its practice within a given group. But there's this marvelous example that he uses with a uh, bonobo named Kuni and a starling. And I mentioned that I'd come prepared. And so I just wanted to read this because it is just a beautiful moment of empathy and practice. DeWall uses this evidence in order to be able to ground his argument. DeWall begins, he says, one day Kuni, who is the bonobo, captured a starling. Out of fear that she might molest the stun bird, which appeared undamaged, the keeper urged the ape to let it go. Cooney picked up the starling with one hand and climbed to the highest point of the highest tree, where she wrapped her legs around the trunk so that she had both hands free to hold the bird. She then carefully unfolded its wings and spread them wide open, one wing in each hand, before throwing the bird as hard as she could toward the barrier of the enclosure. Oops. Unfortunately, it fell short and landed into the bank of the moat where Cooney guarded it for a long time against a curious juvenile. Now, I find that just a beautiful little story for any number of reasons, but it is the it is evidence of empathy, at least cross-species empathy here. Cooney could identify not only that the bird was in the wrong place. It needed to be up in the sky. Now it's within within the enclosure. But she also knew what needed to happen. We needed to spread the bird's wings and let it go. Of course, this poor bird is is injured or... It just needed Kuni's thrust. <laughs> All engines go. For Kuni to take these actions towards someone of her, of her own species would have been quite bizarre. You couldn't necessarily pick, take someone, pick them up, and try and move their legs when they just aren't, aren't, aren't re- reciprocating. But she had, she had seen birds flying. She knew what birds needed to do. And she had this idea that, well, you know, the bird isn't, isn't doing what it needs to do. And so it would be good for it to actually, you know, we'll pick it up and just put it back in its place, help it fly. So it had the capacity to understand what another, another species, another, another being in the world needed in order to live and exist. Mm. I think that that's quite right. And I also find it really lovely that the ape stood guard after, so after realizing, okay, something must be wrong here. The bird hasn't, or whatever this object is, hasn't actually gone up in the air um, like it should. There must be something wrong. And so just in the account where DeWall observes, ah, here it stands guard. And the standing guard against that curious juvenile who, I don't know, would want to tear its feathers off or whatever it might be, also indicates that that sign of empathy where it's okay, we need to protect this. This this is matter out of place here. This this bird is out of place. And so we must create the conditions of possibility for the bird to take flight again. So, you know, I, I don't want to read too much into into that in terms of thinking about motivations or what have you. From a very narrow uh, sense, though, DeWall says, okay, you know, this is a wonderful moment of, of cross-species empathy. You know, it's funny, it reminds me, actually, I don't know if you've seen, there's this wonderful, actually, so DeWall did a TED Talk, and there's a wonderful snippet he includes of a, an exper- a snippet from an experiment where he fed uh, capuchin monkeys grapes and cucumbers. 
The cucumber is the pedestrian bread and butter, and the grape is the caviar of rewards. And for the same task, one monkey was given uh, a cucumber, and the other was given a grape. And what's marvelous about that video, you should uh, look it up if you uh, haven't had a chance to. We can add the, the link in the episode. Awesome. Um, when you look at it, the monkey who's been given the cucumber uh, prior to this, I'm sorry, I skipped, I skipped a point. Um, the two are given different fruits, and the monkey that's given the cucumber observes that uh, the other monkey is given a grape. For and the same action. For the same action, and that does not go down well at all. There Welcome to it, capitalism, monkey. And it's, it's marvelously funny because that monkey is challenging <laughs> and uh, gesticulating and throwing the cucumber back uh, at the, at the uh, uh, tech uh, person who's uh, handing out the fruit. Uh, and so DeWall makes a quip, ah, you know, this is, uh, this is uh, Wall Street protest right here. But there is something about the quality of that appreciation of a lack of fairness that for DeWall is a foundation for the argument that morality that is premised on an opportunity to counter or to correct fundamental unfairness or inequality is something that is ingrained within us. Just to briefly bring it together is that the roots of morality are located in the tendency towards in-group behavior. So we're able to, does that mean, is that, is that why then for DeWall we would, have, we would have built a society? Well, maybe it's that um, in-group behavior is premised on fairness, mm. that a society can only function with uh, a moral code such that there are there is equivalency or equity or what have you. Otherwise, it dissolves into a defensive, angry orientation. And so the experiment with the monkey is about, on the one hand, when both actions are rewarded in the same manner and equally, uh, society and morality can persist. But when there's a sense of, of inequity or a lack of fairness, then it exposes immorality. That is the experience of the monkey who protests, who says, hey, I did the same action and I should get a grape, not this weeny little cucumber, demonstrates an instinct toward morality because of an identification of a lack of fairness. If morality then is this evolutionary phenomenon that has seeds in non-human animals, and we talked about the difference in degree and difference in kind, and DeWall's arguing that primates would experience empathy as part of this difference in degree, could we think of other animals that also experience empathy? I mean, is it also a difference in degree between degrees of species of animals? I, I mean, I think it's entirely uh, like possible. Like Slugs would have less of, or stick insects? Well, I guess, so this is an interesting question about DeWall's analysis because there are some species of animal that must live in groups in order to survive. So I know 
more about stick insects, interestingly, than I do about slugs. And observing stick insects, interestingly, I I am the proud uh, human to, to stick insects. Those stick insects are not at all social, so they don't interact. And their social universe seems to be conditioned by their eucalyptus leaves rather than themselves, you know, rather than a relation to one another. So I wonder if the evolutionary chain here is delimited by virtue of social animals. So say, for instance, although DeWall hasn't done experiments with wolves or other social groups, presumably there we would see similar evidence of in-group or out-group behavior, evidence of a discernment for inequity or uh, this is unfair, dude, I deserve the grape thinking. I think, Melanie, that is a really good point to leave today's episode because the experiences of different beings in the world is a great preface for what we're going to discuss next time. And we'll discuss Henri Bergson, or Bergson, as we'll call him. Let me just say, one of the interesting things about Bergson is that, in the connection that he has with de Waal, is in the sense that de Waal is looking at this evolutionary continuity, and he's establishing life, the, the livingness, the, the fact that we're living as a capacity for morality. And so the, uh, the sense of that evolutionary continuity is something that Bergson picks up. Bergson is a philosopher in uh, the early part of the 20th century, and he offers some philosophical reflections about selfhood in relation to some of the thinkers that we've been looking at, such as, as Descartes and others. So he's another one of these thinkers who seeks to challenge in this case before the fact that opposition between human and non-human animal that Derrida uh, identifies as a Cartesian legacy. Alrighty then. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. You can say, say that, that is a Carlin White collaboration. I'm like this. I'll just do one. Oh. <laughs> All right, you start. Dude. Okay. You can't say that. You can't say. You can't say that is a Carlin White collaboration. Francesca Rimi Chang designed our logo. Stephen Hunt composed the music. Christo Fuertes. What did he do? Bye.